Hello, my name is Hannes Jennig. I'm a German actor, um, German-American actor, uh, environmentalist, documentary filmmaker, part-time writer. And um, I'm really looking forward to talking to Andy Dukes about riding our favorite toys, motorcycles. Greetings, everyone. You heard it from the man himself. Hannes Janneke is a man of many talents and many facets, too. A successful actor, documentary filmmaker, committed environmentalist and published author. He's never happier than when he's riding a motorcycle, though. I guess we can all identify with that. Hannes divides his time between Bavaria and California, and usually it's pretty hard to get hold of him because of his filming commitments. The global pandemic has put many projects on hold in the performing arts industry. This at least allowed us to track him down at his home in Germany, where we got him on the line to chat about bikes, climate protection, endangered species and BMW motorrad days, but not necessarily in that order. Enjoy the listen. So welcome to Ride and Talk, Hannes. It's great to have you on the line as a guest on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Andy. Well, 2020, what a strange year we've all experienced so far. How has the past eight months been for you? It was the first real break I had since I was in my mid-20s, which is now like 35 years ago. And um, it was kind of schizophrenic because on the one hand side, I found the whole situation really dramatic, especially for artists, theater people, musicians, and people who really live off life performing because everything was canceled. I mean, movie theater shut down, theater shut down, music clubs shut down. I mean, for those people, it was, it, it is an existential threat. For me, it was kind of luxurious because, I, as I said, at the first break, and I think one of the things I missed the most was the fact that the BMW days in the Bavarian Alps in July were canceled because that's one of the things I religiously go to every year. So like everything else, it was canceled. So it's been the quietest year I've had since I was probably four years old. Yeah, absolutely. One of the weirdest things for me was not rocking up in Garmisch on the first weekend of July, like you said. So did you miss all those annual reunions at BMW Motorrad days this year then? Absolutely, because I mean, I have so many friends there now who either are BMW bikers or work for BMW. Um, of course, I miss these people. I mean, some of them work in the US, some of them work in Britain, like you, some of them work in Germany, Switzerland, South Africa. Of course, it's like this annual get together and party thing that we had going for the past, what, 12, 13 years. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's, there's so much more to complain about than missing out on a biker party. I mean, I've, I've met so many people who are really in trouble now who have a hard time paying their rent. And so I don't want to complain about missing out on a motorcycle ride, to be honest. No, I totally understand that. But speaking of riding motorcycles, did the lockdown give you a chance to ride your bikes at least? Yeah, I mean, it was actually forbidden for a while from like mid-March until late May, you weren't allowed to do a leisure drives. Of course, police did check on certain, like there's a couple of famous roads in Germany where everybody takes their bikes on a beautiful sunny day. So the police actually checked on that. But I did ride my bike because I take it to work every day. And I live like about 32 miles outside of Munich in the countryside. And I drive to the office almost every day. Got a F900 this year because I figured there won't be a, a lot of touring going on this year, like through the Alps, Italy, whatever. So I got myself a really great light bike from BMW and it's just my everyday vehicle so I kept riding all the way through the lockdown as far as it was legal yeah and I think you must probably be living among beautiful nature in Germany if you're well out of the city center so I guess it's been easier for you than actually being right in the middle of the city I was really lucky because both my siblings live in like in like really urban areas my sister lives in the fourth floor of her like apartment block and she wasn't even allowed to leave her apartment she works in a hospice 
And because, of course, old age homes and hospices were the first place to really get hit hard, she was only allowed to either be in her apartment or in the hospice. And she didn't see anybody outside her, her apartment and the hospital where she works for almost four months. So for those people, it was really, really hard. I'm super lucky. I live in a small village between Munich and the Alps. And here, the only difference that we realized was that people were wearing a mask when they went to the organic food store or to the supermarket. I mean, here it was actually, I was really, really lucky. So have you always been into bikes then, ever since you were a young kid? Yeah, I started with little Bonanza bicycles. I was always obsessed with two wheels. I don't know why. Even when I grew up in a Volkswagen Beetle with two siblings and my parents, and whenever a motorcycle overtook us, I just squeezed my nose against the window and thought, hmm, one day I'm going to ride one of those. I have no idea where the obsession comes from, but I started really, really early. So what about Beamers then? When did you discover them, and how many have you ridden, and what have you got now then? Well, I got into Beamers when I had the money to buy a Beamer because when I was young, it was just like, it was not exactly an affordable bike. So I started with a, my first one was a Suzuki Monkey, a Honda Monkey, sorry. And then I had a Suzuki 550 and then worked my way over to Honda to the Magna 700 water-cooled Magna. Then I had a, it's, I know it's embarrassing, I had a Virago, a Yamaha. Then I had a, a Ducati Monster that I was bought used. So I, I always thought BMW is too expensive. And then in 2007, I actually went into the BMW Bike Center in Munich and realized, hmm, actually, I might have made enough money now to buy myself a BMW. And that's how I started on Beamers. And once you've been on a Beamer, it's really hard to go back to anything else, unless it's like vintage. So you have an old Indian, an old Moto Guzzi or something classic. But technology-wise, I would not know any bike that could beat a Beamer right now. Yeah, I agree with you 100% there. I've got to ask you, what's your favorite motorcycle movie scene of all time? I mean, I love some of the recent Mission Impossible bike scenes, but the one I keep going back to personally is Arnie in Terminator 2. And I think it was in the LA Basin. I remember seeing that at a huge cinema in Paris with fantastic surround sound. And it was the the contrast of the different motorcycle engine noises along with the actual stunts, things that shouldn't be attempted on any cruiser, let alone an American V-twin. <laughs> um, of course, uh, there's a slight generational gap between you, Andy, and myself. I grew up with people like Steve McQueen and Marlon Brando and on the waterfront. So my whole, I was probably, I got into bikes probably because of all these old 60s movies. So um, I, I admire what stunt guys can do and I admire what they do in Mission Impossible, but I was always totally hooked on on these old biker classics and the guys who rode them. And that was like the people I grew up with, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, Steve McQueen, Marlon Brando. So my whole thing was always to try and be as cool as those guys on their bikes. So that's the first movies I saw with cool guys on cool bikes. And then I saw a movie, I guess it was like sometime in the late 70s, mid-70s, Easy Rider, Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper. And that's when I really got into motorcycles. And um, so I'm just a different generation. I mean, I admire everything that these stunt guys do and what Tom Cruise is doing, all these action flicks. But what, what got me going with bikes was definitely the generation before Tom Cruise. And that was mainly Steve McQueen, Marlon Brando, and On the Waterfront, and of course, the guys from Easy Rider. So I've ridden quite a bit in the USA, and it's a great place to explore by motorcycle. What have been your favorite road trips over there, and where should people consider going? So I think I'd, if I've taken a bike to the US or renting one in the US, I'd always start in California. 
because it's probably the state that offers the most scenic beauty. You've got the amazing Pacific Coast Highway going along the West Coast. You've got the desert. You've got the mountains like uh, Yosemite National Park, Sequoia National Park. You got, I mean, it just offers everything. And I think if you, I mean, the U.S. is too big to do it in one tour. So if I'd start, I'd always go to California first. And if you have the time, uh, drive the, maybe start in the Pacific Northwest maybe around British Columbia, Vancouver, and then drive south. Because if you do it the other way around, you'll always be on the wrong side of the road. If you drive from north to south, you're riding right next to the ocean. And you can do this forever. I mean, you can keep going to San Diego through Mexico. I mean, it's, I'm a West Coast fan, and I think that the nature there is just unbelievable. And there's not too many big cities. I mean, outside of L.A., San Francisco, and Seattle, it's pretty much untouched nature, and that makes riding up and down the west coast so amazing yeah highway one it's uh, hard to beat certainly and that's a good tip there on uh, going north to south i wish i'd have uh, <laughs> wish i'd have t- spoken to you before i explored that part of the states that's for sure now i read somewhere or you might have mentioned earlier that you used to own an 1100 cc virago um i didn't think custom bikes were your thing but as a german living in america i gotta ask you how well you think the r18 is going to go down stateside i've owned harley's and all I can say is if you want a reliable bike as an everyday vehicle, buy the Beamer. I had, I had nothing but trouble with my Harleys. I mean, it's a long time ago. I bought mine like in the early 90s. I had two different ones. And they're just not reliable bikes. They're just male jewelry. I'm not, honestly, I'm not a big Harley fan. I like the image. I like the marketing. But by now, it's pretty much an old man's toy. And, and the Beamer is just, technologically speaking, the Beamer is so far ahead so i mean it's of course obviously an attack on harley davidson i wish bmw good luck it's not really my kind of bike i think it's just too big and too heavy for my taste because i'm kind of a light guy and i'm not exactly tall i'm I'm 5'11 so i'm an average size man and i I, i'm not into these huge fat heavy bikes so if i had the choice between a, a huge fat cruiser and a GS, I'd always go for the GS because I still think the GS is the best bike on the planet. I mean, there's nothing beats a GS. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I mean, above all, absolutely, the GS floats your boat. And of course, it's the 40th anniversary of this model series in 2020. So what's been your favorite GS model over the years, Hannes? I did the Sahara Desert in 1989 on an old GS, and I've driven all the the late models too, the water-cooled models and I, if I get, I'm thinking about getting one for next season again. I mean, I think I'm going to get the adventure because I need cases. I always travel with luggage, and um, yeah, it's just it's the most comfortable, the safest ride, and it's still really sporty. I mean, you can take a GS basically on a racetrack and still have fun, but you can also take it through the Sahara Desert or through Alaska or the Yukon. I mean, it's just it's the most versatile bike I've ever been on. Yeah, big trips like that that you mentioned, the Sahara and the Yukon. I mean, there's no better way to improve your riding skills and see the world, is there, than just heading out on the road like that? Exactly. And it's, I mean, there are certain places that are super biker friendly, especially Canada is extremely biker friendly. All the lodges have like little motorcycle signs out. They cater to bikers. So the Sahara is a different ball game you need. I mean, I did it with a friend. We were two bikers and one, uh, an old uh, Toyota Land Cruiser and we couldn't have done it without the car because you need so much equipment and camping equipment and water supplies and extra tires and I mean the Sahara is is really an adventure I did it once I don't think I'll ever do it again because it's really really rough but um, still I'm really happy I did it. 
yeah, you've made the memories and that's the most important thing, isn't it? Now, I just want to talk about old bikes because I read somewhere that you once expressed a desire to ride some of the vintage Beamers. And I just did an interview last week with a restorer and a collector on Long Island who's got a private museum, I think, with every BMW bike from 1923 to 1970 and a fair few modern ones too. But he's doing a great job in keeping the heritage alive for others to appreciate, that's for sure. But did you ever get on an old bike or is that still on your bucket list? Yeah, I actually went to Spandau to the BMW uh, factory a couple of years ago, and they actually let me ride bikes from the 20s. And um, all I could say is I felt like such a pussy because the comfort, the technology, the handling of modern bikes is so different from what these guys used to ride the 20s, 30s, and 40s. So um, it was a real, it was a piece of work riding those things. But I I have a total knack for old bikes and I have to admit I have an old Moto Guzzi California, which used to be the California Highway Patrol motorcycle. So I love old bikes. But for everyday use, um, I'm happy that BMW has evolved into what they build now. Yeah, those old bikes uh, certainly sharpen up your riding skills, that's for sure. But speaking of riding skills, did you ever land an acting part because of your ability to ride? Actually, no. I did a lot of motorcycle riding in films, but that was I wasn't hired because I have a motorcycle license. I have a series in Germany now. It's called the. It's a, it's a thriller set in Amsterdam. We've done four films so far. We'll do two more next year. And because Amsterdam is definitely not a car town, we decided to put my character, who's an undercover cop, on the R nine on the nine T. So um, I can combine making money, acting, playing a really cool role in a cool thriller and riding a motorcycle at the same time. And on top of it, I'm actually getting paid for it, believe it or not. Yeah, and there are worse places to be than Amsterdam, too. Oh, it's one of my favorite cities. I have to say that because that's where my uh, wife is from. So she's going to be listening. But I agree with it as well. It's, it's a wonderful place. Got married there. Now, I think you've always been an environmentalist right from a young age. So who or what inspired you originally back in the day? It was actually really silly. My, my parents had a subscription for a newspaper. And one day on the cover page, there was a photo of a little dinghy with uh, big letters on this at the side. It said Greenpeace. And they were actually running up against a huge Japanese whaling trawler. And I thought, what the fuck are these guys doing? And then I started reading about Greenpeace. And I just thought these guys were cool. So I joined Greenpeace when I was 15. And then, you you know, once you join that, those days, you got a newsletter every three months on paper. And I started reading that. And so it, I just found it fascinating, this the battle that these Canadian dudes started against the nuclear industry, against ocean pollution, against whaling. And that's pretty much how I got into it. And as an actor, you've been able to give a platform to certain causes that are close to your heart, such as endangered species and environmental devastation. So... What do we all need to do right now to bring positive change to the world? God, that's an endless list. I mean, we obviously got to reduce CO2 emissions. We got to stop plastic and ocean pollution. We should eat a lot less meat because that's one of the biggest um, CO2 problems that we have. We should all fly less. We should drive smaller cars. We should all ride motorcycles because environmentally speaking, they're a lot better than cars. I mean, it's an endless list of we should reduce our energy consumption. Um, it's we should stop consuming in a, in, in in a fast sense. There should no shouldn't be fast food. There shouldn't be fast fashion. I mean, none of that stuff is sustainable. And I think sustainability is really what we have to uh, confront ourselves with: cradle to cradle thinking, circular economy. The whole growth model has to be rediscussed. I mean, we do need growth, but not 
in the in a sense that we're practicing it now. We should we need growth in the healthcare industry. We need growth in education, uh, in energy efficiency. But we're not growth right now is defined by buy more, shop more, spend more money, and throw away as much as you can. And that model, I think, is not going to work for very much longer. So, I mean, the list of things we can do as consumers is pretty much endless. Yeah, the most important thing is that everyone does something and does something soon. Now, you've made a lot of TV series and films about causes you're passionate about, such as the illegal trade in rhino horns, killing of sharks, fin soup, or the plight of the orcas, dolphins, orangutans. I mean, the list goes on. But which one of your campaigns would you say had the most impact on us? It's interesting. I did a film on salmon and salmon farming last year, and it aired this year. And the morning after we aired on a public German broadcaster, which is the German equivalent of the BBC, the stock market, I mean, the stock value of the four, of four biggest Norwegian salmon suppliers dropped by 11%. And German salmon consumption has seriously dropped. So that was the first time we really experienced like a direct effect of a film that we made because we actually showed how salmon is produced and mass farmed in Norway and in Chile and Canada. So um, that was a movie where we really felt, wow, you can make a difference with a small little documentary. I did other films, like I did one on polar bears and CO2 emissions and the biggest selling car in Germany is still the SUV. I mean, in 2020, Germans still believe that in all these big cities, they have to drive around in big SUVs. So obviously that film had zero effect. I mean, it's very, it's hard to judge, but sometimes I feel it makes a lot of sense what we do. And sometimes I think it's a huge waste of energy. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough call, isn't it? Depends what side of bed you get out on. But you've been driving an i3 for a long time, haven't you? You've been making a sort of personal statement on that front. Yeah, I, I think I was one of the first people who actually drove it. And I know it's questionable. The technology isn't really there yet. The CO2 balance isn't what it should be but i think it's a statement that we got to get out of fossil fuels and i know electric mobility has a long way to go both for cars trucks motorcycles but you know it's slowly we're, we're, we're getting there and i think um hydro power is going to be a huge thing especially for long distance driving so i just bought that car because i wanted to make a statement against the fossil fuel industry and because i think one of the worst lobbies we're dealing with on the planet is the oil lobby because they also produce plastic. I mean, they really produce everything that destroys our environment. And that's why I decided to drive electric in my car. Yeah, no, it's, uh, everyone needs to do something, that's for sure. Now, you're a published author as well as all the other things you're involved in. So does that give you a voice also? Does it, do you feel compelled to write about these socially relevant topics? Uh, it's, it's, it was never my ambition. It's just after I started doc uh, my documentaries, uh, there was so many publishing houses coming, why don't you write a book about this and about that? And I say, oh, look, I don't have the time. I'm really actually kind of a lazy guy who just wants to surf and ride motorcycles. And then they kind of talked me into it. And I was really lucky because every book I've done so far did really, really well. So uh, I'm taking it, definitely I've taken a long break now because I did, uh, like I did a book last year and it's so much work because I don't write fiction, I write nonfiction. And you spend like months and months on research and talking to scientists and environmentalists and lobbyists and so i'm taking a break right now but um, sometimes it's kind of i think it's there's still people who read surprisingly and obviously there's people who buy that stuff and who are interested in environmental and social issues and i guess once in a while i'll sit down and write yeah i mean it's i don't know how you sometimes sort of escape from some of these things in your head without them getting you down but do you find like riding a motorcycle just allows you to switch off for a while and just kind of zone out and enjoy, just enjoy the ride, just enjoy the environment as you see it, as you pass through it. 
I think there's nothing, maybe besides surfing or kite surfing or sailing, that clears your head the way motorcycles do. I just, uh, just my ride into the office every morning, I have a 35 minute ride. It just makes me happy. I get off the bike, get into the office, and I'm a happy guy. I drive home in the evening and I get home and I'm a happy guy. I just don't, I, I can't even tell you what it is, but just being on two wheels and smell things, be it diesel fumes or be it the countryside and trees blossoming, whatever. It's just, it's an experience that really simply makes me happy. I can't even tell you why, but I really, that's the, la the last thing I'd give up in my life, honestly, is motorcycles. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, it's, listening to your talk, actually, it's amazing you find any time to ride motorcycles because, I mean, you've recently been honoured for your tireless commitment to environmental and animal protection. You've got, you've got your acting job as well. You know, you're, you're very, very busy. I think you also do voiceovers. I think you also do audio books. I mean, Let's say the world returns to some kind of normal in 2021, Hannes. What's still, what's on top of your motorcycle wish list? Good question. Um, I have one big dream. I don't know whether I'll ever be able to, to actually do it, is through Patagonia in Chile on a motorcycle. I've never been down there. I'm, I've seen tons of documentaries. I read Bruce Chatwin's book, great British writer from the 70s and 80s. Um, that's one of my biggest dreams, to do the whole Chilean coast and the Andes on a motorcycle. And the, what's it called, Atacama Desert, the driest spot on earth. So that's a destination I'd love to do. I've done some riding in Africa, um, especially in the Sahara, but I've never done like Western Africa, which is the most colorful and most joyous part of Africa. So Ghana, Ivory Coast, Senegal, gorgeous countryside, beautiful coast, would love to. I mean, there's so many destinations I'd still love to do. But honestly, as I just said, my ride into the office and back, which is about 60 miles every day, already makes me happy. As long as I can ride, I'm happy. Even if it's just basically going to the organic food store and get my almond milk, that makes me happy. And with my little backpack. So, I mean, I'd, I'd still love to do more big trips, but right now I'm just happy to be able to ride at all. Yeah, just getting out there and, and riding, absolutely. And that's for Patagonia and South America. I just went down there in 2012 for the GS Trophy, and uh, yeah, I can certainly vouch for an amazing, amazing Where'd destination go? for Where riding bikes. Argentina and Chile. Oh, you've done Chile. You lucky bastard. Yeah, well, it's it's still there, Hannes. It's still there, and I'd thoroughly recommend it. I mean, we were only there for about two weeks, and there's a lot more to explore than what we saw. But what we did see was just incredible. Yeah, the most beautiful mountains, the clearest waters, the incredible trail. So absolutely 100% recommend it to anyone. Thanks. Yeah, I, I knew. That I, I'm, I'm sure I'd have the greatest time going to Chile. Patagonia, magic word. <laughs> Yep, keep it on that bucket list for sure. I Listen, will. it's been a real, real pleasure chatting with you again, and hopefully we'll get to catch up at BMW Motorrad Days next summer in Berlin, of course, this time. So thanks for being our guest on the podcast today. Stay safe and take care out there, Hannes. Thanks, Andy, and we'll probably see each other with masks at the BMW Days next year. Thanks, Hannes. Great chat there. Interesting to hear your thoughts on sustainability, environmental and animal protection too as well as your passion for BMW bikes. Keep up the good work and keep those dreams of riding in Patagonia alive. You won't be disappointed. That's it from us for now too. Hope you enjoyed this latest episode of Ride and Talk. If you did, give us a rating or share with your friends. It'll help others find us. If you haven't subscribed yet, then please do, and you'll get future episodes delivered directly as soon as they're published. All right, take care out there, and we look forward to welcoming you back soon. Bye for now.